And the Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, uh, we ask that as we think about the grace evident through the sacraments, that you would help us to receive and distribute more of it, so that the world might better better realize the joy you intend for us. Amen. Okay, so we've talked about um, the Eucharist. We've talked about marriage. We made it through last week, unction. And um, I might have even scheduled one for today. No. Good. I think I sent one out in the news you can use, but it, I don't feel bound to follow that schedule because I don't remember what it is. July 9th off. July 9th is off. Oh, great. Okay, good. Then, I, you know, really it'll be our pick. Do we want to talk about baptism or ordination or confirmation? Are those the only ones left? No, there's got to be. Oh, we, we did reconciliation. Baptism or confirmation um, unction or ordination. Those are the three. I, I haven't done unction. I did reconciliation last week. Yeah, in my head I thought I had. Any, any strong wills or just pick one and go? Ordination. Ordination? Oh, fantastic. This is so good. Holy orders. Of course, this is one of the, the lesser or the minor sacraments, depending how you use this. I think I've told you in church, in church words, Usually we use greater and lesser, and they were two um, priests in San Diego, uh, both named Michael, both who went to Neshota House for seminary back in the 70s. One of them was significantly taller than the other, so he was Michael the greater, and then <laughs> there was Michael the lesser. That was sort of how they did it, and that's actually church speak. It's not really re- respective of size, it should be age, and Michael the greater was also older. So there you go. Okay, so, so it's one of the lesser sacraments in a sense or minor because not everybody's called to ordination, right? And, and I've, I've dropped hints about this along the way. This is pretty instrumental in, in, in the Episcopal Church um, because of our sacramentology, right? So just to make sure we're differentiating here, in the Southern Baptist Church, or the Baptist Church in general, there is ordination, but it's done from church to church. So when I was ordained as a Southern Baptist minister, not as a deacon, but as a gospel minister at the age of 22, um, my local church ordained me. Um, of course, the people who ultimately chose to ordain me were the board of the deacons, who themselves had not been ordained a gospel ministry, but that had been ordained as deacons. Um, what authority did ordination have? Well, not really the same, because to be honest, if you're Southern Baptist, anybody can serve the Lord's Supper. Unless your church has a different thing, because every church has a different thing. That's the funny bit, right? So, so part of it is about rules and roles and regulations, and then, and then part of it is really just about identity. And maybe we'd better talk about both here and there. And if I confuse you or bore you, as always, say, I'm confused or bored. Let's, let's get the oil out, okay? <laughs> All right, so um, I think I gave you a diagram before. You can, read, um, you can read this in the prayer book, and it's really lovely. We, we, we amended the prayer book in 76. The prayer book has been amended the first prayer book was written in uh, 18, 
Oh man, I used to know this. 1783 maybe? 1786. First prayer book, 1786, Samuel Seabury wrote it. Stood for a hundred years, was, was amended in the late 1800s, and then there was the 1928 book. Anybody grow up with the 1928 book? Okay. And then there was the 1976 book, which is the red one we now have, right? Now, now, now the reason I'm telling you this, it's long-winded, but, but I promise it's going kind of somewhere. Um, the Eucharistic prayer has changed a little bit as the vernacular has changed. Some of the things we've prayed for in sections of the prayer book, like prayers, have changed, right, been updated. Um, one of the, a couple of the big updates, right, were in 1928 when you said the Nicene Creed. Didn't you say, I believe in one God? I believe. So a big change from 1928 was from the I to the we language, right? And that's, that's a significant change when you think, think about what it might mean. Of course, it could just be words, but I don't think it is. Uh, the other thing that changed from 28 to 76 is the definition of the church. The church is a ministry of... Does anybody know the answer? This is in the, in the catechism in the back. The church is the minister of... Ministry of what kind of people do you suppose? Of God's people, fair enough. And what, what, which God's people? Now, Ellen Maston said the word laity. Now, now, that comes first in the new prayer book. But in the 28 prayer book, the church is a ministry of bishops, priests, deacons, and laity. In the 76 prayer book, the church is a ministry of laity, deacons, priests, and bishops. You may say it doesn't make any difference. You may say that. But the 76 prayer book was written with an emphasis <clears throat> that the church is a ministry of everybody in that square, and the square represents laity. And so then you have to ask yourself, I think, in the spirit of the prayer book, right? If the church is a ministry of all laity, who are the laity? I'm not being simple with that question, and... and I think it's a great question to ask because the prayer book doesn't say who the laity are. Who do you suppose them to be? Everyone with what limit or distinction? Say, sorry? Uh, and I say this is a good question, and this is, I, I don't, I'm not trying to answer this question for you, but I think it's worth asking. If this square represents everybody in the laity... Right? Are there people outside the square or not? So in one thought, right, if you have to believe to be in the laity, which would mean if you're an unbeliever, you're not in the square. So the church is not a ministry of unbelievers. That sounds maybe fair. Any other thoughts on that? Yes, sir. If we're really going to welcome people and they're coming to learn and they want to participate in our ministries, why are they not? Okay, so... Here's another thought. If we really want to welcome people and they're coming to learn and participate, even if they're not believers, can they be in the square? So I guess a follow-up question is, if you have any interest in the church, you could be a lay person whether you believe or not. Now, now we're not going to decide this. That just means there's different perspectives to think through. Okay? Any other thoughts? You, you, you do uh, define who gets to take communion. 
Well, I do. I, I, that's my definition. And, and a rector can change the definition. And that's interesting because we're talking about what ordination will do for you, right? <laughs> and what it won't do for you. Yeah. So, so another way to think of it is who comes to the Lord's table could be laity, right? Yes, ma'am. So that's a great question. Are the people who benefit from the ministries of the church also included in the church? So I heard a yes. And, and listen, I'm not here to give you an answer on this, right? But when we talked about sacrament of service, right? And again, this is one of those big things about sacramentality. Do sacraments work because you have the right intention or do they work because it's God's intention that they do? <laughs> Right? I mean, that's an important question. If you go with the second, if you say a sacrament works regardless of your intention because it's all about God's, and then I ask you who is in the laity, then it could really be everybody. And that would be a weird thing to think about, right? Is that you could be a militant atheist and you could be in the church's laity. Church with a capital C. Right? This is important to say, right? I mean, um, because church, as you, we may or may not know, church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which just means gathering, right? The gathering. The gathering of whom? The gathering of believers. The gathering of people who are interested in gathering. The gathering of all of God's children, regardless of their interest, right? I mean, those, those are really the categories, and it's, it, it's helpful because, quite honestly, what we do, when we, anytime we do this, if we pay really good attention to ourselves, we might find our boundaries stretch out and say, that's a lovely idea. And then we get to the question of like, will you baptize those people kids? Of course not. <laughs> not till they do blah, blah, blah. You, you, you know what I mean? I, I think and sometimes our church life is lived with this sort of accordion style of expansion and contraction, right? And, and, and I don't know what the hope is. Maybe the hope is that we don't contract so much and that our, 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 our width gets wider. Some folks hope that we actually get more stringent, and of course you can understand both arguments. Uh, the, the question is where God is leading us. So, so this is just an open question about laity. I'm not going to answer it for you. But um, <clears throat> always worth thinking who's in the box, okay? Or, or if there is, in fact, a box at that point. The prayer book says, though, that the church, the gathering is a ministry of laity, deacons, priests, and bishops. And what that means, right, uh, and part of our understanding here is that deacons don't exist somewhere out of that box, but that the deacons initially are lay folks in the church who are called to ministry. Um, the diaconate is a type of ministry within the ministry of the laity. And I don't want to draw the box too big because certainly that, that's already too big of a box, right? The proportion of deacons is much smaller than that in the real church. Anybody know a permanent deacon in the Diocese of Texas? Permanent deacon. This is a great thing, and this is where it's helpful to learn about ordination. So I told you before, let me tell you a few, remind you of a couple unique things about the Episcopal Church. 
we say that there are laity, that there are deacons, which is a smaller set, that there are priests, even smaller than that, and that there are bishops, even smaller than that. So you're thinking of concentric circles or boxes or stars or whatever shape you like to draw, smaller and smaller and smaller. People who are called the different roles in the ministry of the church. But the truth is, according to the prayer book, everybody's called to the ministry of the church. So the deacon, the priest, and the bishop, in some ways, are a hierarchical set, but the ministry of the bishop is no greater than the ministry of the laity. In fact, the prayer book phrases it the other way. The ministry of the laity is superior to the ministry of the bishop. Now, that makes sense numerically because the laity outnumber the bishops, right? Of course, we know that there are specialized roles, and what the bishop ends up doing is directing the laity, directing. But if there were no laity, A, there'd be no bishop, and B, there'd be no church because... One of the rules for most of these sacraments, especially for the Eucharist, is you can't take communion by yourself. <laughs> so the bishop it needs at least one other person to say amen or nothing happens at communion. Isn't that neat? Okay, so, so we're the only church, though, that has three separate ordinations. The Romans don't do this. The Lutherans don't do this. The Moravians don't do this. The Methodists don't do this. Episcopal Church, we're all ordained to ministry at the, the commissioning ceremony, frankly, is our baptism. Could be the Eucharist, though, right? Because some people have been receiving the Eucharist. I mean, and let's be honest, the commissioning ceremony is when you're born. <laughs> That's when you're commissioned by God to be a minister in the church, okay? Um, the deacon, though, is an order. And in the Episcopal Church, you really shouldn't be able to tell a difference between the deacon and the priest in terms of uniform. We wear the same collar, right? We all have the same uniform, deacons, priests, and bishops. Bishops might wear a purple shirt. That's how they're distinguishable, right? But otherwise, not in our pedestrian clothes. Um, the, the diaconate, and this is, this is a word that comes to us from Greek, and that's, we've just kept it, deacon. Um, it's really a word about service. So the original deacons show up in the, books, uh, in the book of Acts. And maybe you've heard of St. Stephen before. He's one of the first seven deacons in the early church. The issue before them was that there was a food distribution happening in Jerusalem for poor folk. And it turned out that Jewish folk were getting more food than Greek folk. Hmm. Sounds like every major civilization in the history of the world, right? Uh, so there were some deacons appointed to make sure the food distribution was equitable and that Greek folk got the same nourishment as Jewish folk. There were seven of these deacons. Stephen is one and Philip is another, Philip the Evangelist. Stephen, of course, doesn't just watch the food delivery. He ends up giving a spirited sort of monologue to the people of the city who in turn decide to stone him, and they do. So, so he's the first order uh, sort of killed. Philip, the evangelist, is called so because after monitoring the food distribution, there's an Ethiopian eunuch. This is important. He's got two strikes against him. He's an Ethiopian, not Jewish, Jewish convert, black, and he's a eunuch, which means, right, he's 
got something that's happened to his hardware permanently. And, and if that happens to you in the Jewish Bible, the understanding is you're a lesser person. You can't go into the inner sanctum of the temple. You have to stay in the court of the Gentiles because it's a physical blemish before God and other people, even though that happened without your control or consent. Right? And, and what do you know? Philip baptizes the eunuch which is a really big deal because baptism is the sign of entrance into the Christian community. And Philip the deacon has said that eunuchs are equitable to non-eunuchs. That's a big deal at the time. And maybe that's the ministry of the deacon. In fact, that's kind of how we frame it. The deacon is someone whose vocation is to represent um, the marginalized and the non-considered to the church and for the church to care for these people. So, so really, when you hear the word social justice in general, our understanding of the diaconate is that these are people who are who the church's face for social justice. Now, I don't know a diocese that has figured out the diaconate, including our own. I don't mean that as a criticism, but the deacon cannot do the following things absolve you when you confess, bless you, or offer you communion. What can a deacon do that you don't do? Wear a collar, wear a collar, outside. In the church, wear a stole that is a sash style, right? So it goes over one shoulder and the other hip. A deacon can baptize with the rector's permission. <laughs> Don't ask the bishop's permission. The bishop would rather the rector make that choice, <laughs> in San Diego anyway, because in general, the bishop's answer categorically should be no. That's not what the diaconate's for, although the deacon serves at the pleasure of the rector. This is our, I mean, this is what we do. And then read the gospel. So theoretically, if we had a vocational deacon in the church, the deacon would read the gospel every week. Every week, regardless of who's preaching. Yes, sir. Could you explain why a deacon can't give communion but a lay Eucharistic minister? Can? Oh, a deacon can do it just like a lay Eucharistic minister. What a deacon can't do is consecrate the Eucharist. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, you can baptize somebody under, under emergency circumstances. That's sort of how the diaconate works. Now, there's all play in this. So you might know deacons that have done some of these things and not others of them. And here's another part of the play, right? You understand that when the deacon is a known social justice entity, that they're reading the gospel is a reminder about what good news is all about, not just heaven when we die, but about God's grace to the marginalized and oppressed right now. However, I would ask you, if we had a visiting deacon who wasn't preaching and they read the gospel, would that mean anything extra special to you? The way I was formed, and right or wrong, and, and I'm just, you know, again, I don't know if I get in trouble for saying it or not, but the way I was formed is when you were preaching, you read the gospel. <laughs> Whether you were a deacon, a priest, or a layperson. Because, right, you knew what you were preaching, and that influences the way you read. I was formed that way, so I appreciate it. 
I just want you to know. I mean, I suppose you could talk to the person reading the gospel before you preach on it and say, please read it this way. But then what's the point of that even? What the church is struggling to figure out, I think, is what deacons do. I just want you to know. I think the church is trying to figure that out because honestly, oh, the deacon also dismisses you into the world, right? So, so go in peace to love and serve the Lord. That's what the deacon says, and the deacon reads the gospel. And that's what the deacon does in a service. Um, having not had a deacon in most of my church life, I'm not sure I need them to do that. I'm not sure you do either. And so I'm not saying it's a bad order. I'm saying the deacon, I think, functions best when the deacon is the face of the church to the world and vice versa. Now, what that means in liturgy, I don't know the answer. But, but I, I just want to tell you, there's a guy in San Diego that felt called to be a vocational deacon, and, I, and I'm a believer in him. Um, his father had been incarcerated, and so prison ministry had been close to his heart his whole life, and he was just sort of doing it. And, and he felt honestly called um, to the diaconate. I don't know why. He'd done four years of EFM, and to be a deacon, he also had to go to, you know, like an Episcopal seminary to be formed and to get an MDiv. In San Diego, they have something like a Iona school there. It's called the, um, it's called the School for Ministry. That's what it's called. And, and he did that for, um, golly, like two years, like you, or two or three years, like you'd do the Iona school, and, and was ordained to the diaconate. Now, now this is a guy who's not going to make any money with this job. He's a volunteer. He just goes to prisons, you know. And, and being in the diaconate cost him three more years of study of his life. And um, the only privilege he got was to wear this black shirt with a white collar. But with that privilege comes the bishop telling you where you're going to be on Sunday, and, and that's what you're going to do. <laughs> That's how we knew that guy was called, because he wanted that. He, he wanted that stuff. To be honest, I think the clearest thing for us in San Diego is we needed that man to wear that collar. We needed him to represent us, because he made the church look really good. <laughs> I think that's the goal of the diaconate. These are people who go around wearing this thing and do wonderful things, and people say that's 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 God. That's how it's supposed to be. They go to prisons. Another candidate for the diaconate in San Diego was the one who basically relocated the diocesan center from um, a really nice part of town to the homeless epicenter in San Diego. And, and she was the one who was organizing small services for homeless men religiously, but big services for them like regular meals and haircuts and food and advocacy, etc. right? She made the church look really good. It was nothing the church needed more than for that lady to slap one of these collars on. I, I, I kind of think that's the ministry of the diaconate. Um, but then the question is, can't priests do that too? And the answer is, yes. In the Episcopal Church, to be a priest, you had to be ordained to deacon to begin with. I've got two ordination certificates in my wall. I, I, just because I don't know where to put them. <laughs> um, Probably under my bed, so next logical place. Um, but I have them, you know. So, so I was ordained as the deacon, and we call that a transitional deacon. That's somebody who's pretty confident that their call to ministry as a layperson in the church is to the priesthood, not the diaconate. But our polity has evolved. 
that to be a priest, you have to first be ordained a deacon. And part of that is, I think, because we have this thought about concentric circles, not necessarily going deeper, but doing more specifically defined roles. But our, 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 our call as a priest is always located within the diaconate and the laity. That is, as a priest, it's essential that we consider the marginalized and represent them to the church and the church to them. So what does a priest do that a deacon doesn't do? Um, some people use the ABCs. They do the absolution, right? A deacon can absolve themselves along with you. Almighty and compassionate Lord, absolve us. That's what the deacon says. The priest says, Almighty and compassionate Lord, absolve you. Is it that different? Well, you've got to think through it. Um, we do that at the blessing, right? We, we give a blessing. A deacon can't give a blessing unless we, the deacon blesses us. <laughs> right? I'm allowed to bless you as a priest. Like, bless your heart. <laughs> Deacon says, bless our hearts, you know. Um, and then the C is for communion. The C is for communion. And honestly, when you're a rector, see, not all priests get, well, I mean, it's like, it's this funny business, right? I can baptize without having to get special permission as a priest, but if I want to do it in a church, I have to have the rector's permission because the rector's the, the custodian of the physical plant. Does that sort of makes sense. So it's not just baptism, but it is. It's just sort of weird. So we're ordained to this transitional diaconate. Most people do it for like six months. Um, I think my transitional diaconate lasted about, yeah, six months and three weeks. <laughs> um, six months and three weeks. Yeah, but you know, again, there's some people who stop at the diaconate and that's where they intend to be done, right? And that's, and, and then they, you, depending on the commission on ministry or the, or, or the bishop, you know, they could later say, hey, I feel I'm called to be a priest, and, and that's like starting over, not continuing on. Yes, sir? Can a deacon not play a role in a small church or one where priests are in short supply or they can't afford priests? With the bishop's permission, yeah. And, and I've even heard of deacons. We had a little church in San Diego who, during the unpleasantness, <laughs> I do hope it's behind us. You know, the unpleasantness began in 2003 when Gene Robinson was elected bishop. It got real unpleasant in 2009 when the general convention said, yeah, we're here to stay. That's when it got real unpleasant because that's when a lot of people said, well, we're leaving the Episcopal Church and we're taking our building with us. Yeah, none of them took the building. They did leave the church. <laughs> they tried, right? But there was one of these in San Diego that had 300 people on a Sunday, and after the unpleasantness, they had 13. Um, it's really hard to pay a priest to just do that. You know, it just is really hard. And we didn't have the Bible system in San Diego. didn't have it like they have in Texas. In Texas, what they do is they give you a Bible priest, somebody who works a full-time job, and then for fun is your parish priest. God bless those people. Mike Brady's one of them. That's what he wants to do. In San Diego, we only had two deacons in the whole diocese. Now, this is like 46, 46 churches, just keeping in mind. Pretty sure the deacon went and served in communion every week. I don't really know how he consecrated it. I don't think he and the bishop got together once a week and consecrated a whole bunch and put it in reserve. 
but I don't know how they did it. I do know that he was sort of like the vicar, even though he couldn't be a vicar because he's a deacon, at, at St. Anne's. So you do hear about this emergency stuff, and you know, really, the one who decides who serves sacraments in her or his diocese is the bishop. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? What happens if the bishop breaks the rules? Well, it depends how mad the laity are. <laughs> if they're not, the answer is nothing, because the bishop is autonomous in her or his diocese. Isn't that interesting? That takes us to the bishop, right? So the bishop is the smallest bit here, and theoretically, when we're talking about church powers, not political ones, right? The bishop does everything the deacon does, the laity does, the deacon does, the priest does, but the bishop does really two things that the priest can't do. One is ordination, so the bishop makes priests and makes deacons. Priests can't do that, although you need priests at an ordination, a priest can't do it. And the bishop confirms people, which the priest can't do either, right? And we'll talk about confirmation later. So those are the two real technical things the bishop does that the priest doesn't do. Other distinctions, of course, are the, the, the finery that we wear. All of that's inherited from Greco-Roman um, religion, so it's all pagan, right? What I wear every week, that's, that's pagan stuff. Um, but the differential is that the priest wears the stole. The bishop wears a stole. Whoever's serving the Eucharist wears a chasuble. That's the big fancy gown, the poncho. Um, bishop wears that too. The only other two accoutrements the bishop has are the crozier, which is sort of the shepherd's stick, and the mitre, although in Texas I've never seen him wear the mitre. I think I got a picture of and, uh, Andy Doyle, the, the bishop diocesan, wearing the mitre in the sacristy, but I've, I've, just, I've never seen him wear it. Um, he, he might wear it like on Easter or something at Christ Church Cathedral, I don't know. Anybody ever seen him wear the mitre? Is, is that when he wears it? Under certain, normally he wears, I've told you this before, something called a rochet shamir, which is a bishop. It's more, a more of an informal way of dress for a bishop. It doesn't include a chasuble. It's got kind of like a puffy pirate sleeve with a band at the wrist, and then the stole hangs over it, and it's got like a red draping too. But they didn't wear a chasuble when they wear that, right? So it's, it's, it's sort of different, different dress. Priests don't wear the rochet shamir. That's, that's for bishops. And usually when you wear that, it's a little less formal in some ways, so you don't wear the mitre, you know. I mean, I've seen Bishop Andy wear the Rajat Shamir and use the crozier, but again, when he visited us on our 50th, he didn't have the mitre, which is the fish-shaped hat, right? That was probably all really boring. Those are some of the differences in the orders. Now, again, I've told you this before. What's interesting about the Episcopal Church is we say that when you're ordained, that's, that's, a, that's a, basically an identity change, just like being married is an identity change. Like you go from being yourself to being a husband or a wife. You know, even if that ends up uh, not working out and ends up in divorce, like there's something key in your identity. So the Episcopal Church is the only mainline one I know that once you're ordained, you cannot be defrocked. Uh, that is, once you receive the sacrament of ordination, 
you can be tried as a heretic and found guilty, but your ordination can't be taken from you. Uh, somebody might relinquish their ordination. They might recant their vows to the bishop and sort of unpriest or undeacon themselves. That actually happened to one of the former clerics here at St. Thomas, right? Um, I think Jim Smalley um, recanted his or ordination vows, right? He felt called to the priesthood, served for a while, and then felt that that wasn't where God was calling him, and and recanted his vows, so, so no longer a priest. But that's the only way that works. If a priest is really bad or a deacon's really bad, does some sort of transgression like economic or, 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 or sexual, or um, you know, is a blasphemer who's found guilty of blasphemy by an ecclesiastical court, a bishop can't do that by themselves, they have to have an ecclesiastical court gathered to try you for heresy. Um, if that happens, you can be inhibited from serving sacraments. That means the bishop says you may not absolve, bless, or give the Eucharist or baptism in my diocese until such and such a time. It could be indefinite, right? Um, but as I told you before, an inhibited priest in Texas could go to West Texas, and theoretically, the Bishop of West Texas could say, welcome, serve the sacraments here. And that's how it'd work. So, in some ways, I'm telling you a little bit about the weirdness and, and the function at the same time, right? I think there's this other tension too, and, and we can dial back and forth on all of this. There's this other function about hierarchy, and that's important because, you know, part of what we we are as an Episcopal church just inherently is in some ways hierarchical, right? Um, the word Episcopal is, comes from the Greek word episkopos, which, is a bi which means bishop or overseer, right? So basically what we say is we're a church, the Episcopal church is a church with an overseer structure. And then the three layers then are the overseer or the bishop underneath that are the, the presbyteros, the elders, the priests, and then the deacons, and then the lay people in sort of the organizational power structure, even though we know that the ministry is the inverted bit, right? So it's, it's sort of both and the same, um, which can lead to confusion at times. And I'll tell you about that in just a second. Um, that's sort of how, how, how we do this. Um, You ever have a thought and then just lose it? <laughs> time. Yeah, I'm just waiting for, the, for another thought to come. Um, I, I was going to go somewhere really good with that, and then I don't know what happened to it. Yeah, see, look, I'm having, I'm having early onset um, thought losing. <laughs> well, all that to say, right, is, is that we, we, we do sort of have this ecclesial hierarchy going, uh, for us, even though we know that the, that the hierarchy when it comes to ministry is really about the laity, right? Again, and that, that results in some confusion. So, so here was one of the, the pieces of confusion I wanted to share with you is that the church nationwide is, you know, really struggling a little bit with identity some. And, 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 and we're doing it in a lot of ways, and some of these are good, and, and, and some of these are legacy, and, and, and some of these are just downright hard. So one of the legacy bits, right, is that there's this old adage, and I know you may say this just from a TV show, and it's only in the Roman Catholic Church, but the phrase, Father knows best, right? And um, 
we, we have this idea, right, that, that uh, the priest, the father, um, <laughs> this is such an old adage, right, doesn't recognize women priests at all, um, then in some ways we play into that hierarchy with each other, and so we, we, we give special respect or special um, deference to the priest. Of course, in some ways that makes sense, right, because there's this position of authority, but as we all know organizationally, there's earned authority and there's positional authority, right? And um, it's one of those, those things that, that has its, in some ways is true, you know, the rector has discretion and oversight, but at another point, if that gets held on to really tightly, then the rector ceases to be a member of the laity and ceases to be a person. You know, it's one of those things growing up, I rarely, I rarely heard the preacher, and again, I grew up evangelical, right? So we didn't have that supposed hierarchy, but, but we did. Rarely heard the preacher admit to any frailties. Rarely heard the preacher say, I really messed that up last week, you know? And in some ways, I don't know what we would have done if we'd heard that story, you know, because what we wanted was this perfect individual above us, you know, leading us. Being, being, you know, the, 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 the professional football player of the faith so, so that we could follow in their footsteps, sort of, but knowing that they were bigger and better than us, instead of, frankly, the reality, which is that people who wear this collar are just like people who don't, sometimes worse. One of the biggest struggles I've had as getting ordained was whether my piety was good enough to be a priest. Did I pray sincerely or hard enough? <laughs> it's going to sound silly to you, maybe. But, but I remember when I was getting ordained and I was, or trying to get ordained, I was meeting the bishop. I was like, gosh, you know, like, do I spend enough time praying to be a priest? And are my prayers sincere enough? And I'm going to meet this bishop and I wonder what his piety is like. He must pray all the time. You know, this is like the sort of thing I was thinking, you know, because that's sort of the way I'd grown up, is that's what the preacher does. They, they have this fantastic piety, you know, and, and um, I think the answer to that is maybe. <laughs> maybe. Now, I'm not trying to talk out of both sides of my mouth here. Uh, I don't mean that we, we elect degenerates to the clergy because they're just like everybody else. I don't mean that. Um, but but there, you know, one of the dangers about the father knows best mentality and calling somebody father so-and-so instead of having a relationship with them, honestly, is, um, is distancing and elevation of the clergy and, and, and unattainable expectations about what it's like to be a priest or a minister or a layperson. I'm not trying to tear that down. I just think there's a tension on that. You know, I just want you to know for this, and this, this is a really tough bit that I have to circle back to over and over and over again. You know, um, one of the lessons I was taught in seminary is you can't be friends with parishioners. You can be friendly with parishioners, but you can't be friends with them. Okay? Now you say, what's the difference in that? And, and, and of course, it's a tight rope that has to be walked. And part of our safeguarding policy that we have to do, you know, as clergy, uh, we have to do safeguarding God's children and people, and we have a clergy one. So you might think, oh, that's safeguarding God's people. That's like two hours. It's so long. Ours is eight hours long. I just, just, it's a really delightful eight hours. And, and it includes things that, that, you know, are not necessarily the way I grew up, but that in other ways, like, make a lot of sense to me. Like, for example, um, if I'm, if I'm having a real strong personal crisis, I am not to go to a parishioner for help. 
I go to a non-parishioner or a professional or a family member, right? Because, <laughs> of course, we believe in a priesthood of all believers. This is where it's funny, isn't it, right? But if the priest goes to you as a layperson to be their priest, roles start to get a little bit confusing, right? And, and many of us have known churches, honestly, where the cleric was being pastored by the congregation. Maybe it turned out well. I just know a lot of places where it hasn't. And sure enough, when you're being the priest to the priest, and then you get sick, where will you go? Do, do, do you know what I mean? That's where the stuff gets really difficult in the, in, in the nitty-gritty business of who's allowed to take care of whom. Now, of course, you know, my last rector taught me that, well, I liked him a lot. He was friends with some parishioners. He didn't go to them for pastoral care, but he was friends with them. Made some other people in the parish mad because he wasn't friends with them. But they didn't spend the same amount of time together. I mean, this is always the difficulty of the process. The worst outcome you have to imagine, right, is when the priest is friends with no one. <laughs> yeah. You said you learned it in seminary. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. That's mandated. Well, I don't mean that you can't be friends, but I mean that you can't receive care from your people, right? Like pastoral care is not given to the priest by the parishioner. It comes from the outside of at least this parish, right? Um, in seminary, that was sort of the principle, you know, and, and I think in some ways it's so difficult to walk the line between being friendly and too friendly that the guidance I got in supervised ministry was you're not friends with people who are in your charge. You know, what was helpful for me in my last church was, was, again, seeing this man who was friends with people in the parish. They went on vacation together. Um, they had them over for dinner more than they had other people, you know. They did that sort of bit. But, of course, what they did was they gave everybody in the parish the same scrutiny of care. This is, you know, so I've, I've seen it work well. When I've seen it not work well, right, is that when you're friends with the rector, you get benefits nobody else gets in the parish life. And, of course, that's just wrong. And, and I think that was why in seminary we were taught, don't do it, because your natural proclivity will be to give benefits to your friends instead of making sure everybody gets the same benefits. How, uh, how gray is that line when it comes to the advice that the rector gets from the vestry, the senior ward, that time? Yeah, you know, here's, here's sort of how that works. So I'm just going to make up some scenarios, right? Let's pretend I'm, let's pretend I'm a rector in a parish. <laughs> and I'm having major marital troubles. I probably would inform my senior warden, I'm having major marital troubles. I want you to know that so that you're ready to step in if I need to back off. I don't think I would go to my, I mean, I just can tell you, it would be, um, a judgment error for me to go to my senior warden and say, my wife did this, and I hate this, and my kids are doing this, and I'm thinking about blah, 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 blah. I mean, I can cross the line doing that, right? I think, I think we err on the side of discretion when we're worried about overdoing it. I, I, I think every relationship's different, too. I mean, I think we can talk about details of our lives. We can talk about difficulties in, you know, as parents or as students or as, you know, citizens in the kingdom of God. But there's a certain place, right, where if, if our wounds are just actively, openly, arterial bleeding, 
you know, we might best treat those first in triage before we go to our parishioners. Do you, do you, do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's really helpful to tell personal stories when we preach because they're my stories. When I tell somebody else's stories, they're not mine. However, if, I can't, if, I, if I'm telling stories in which I've got arterial bleeding, you know, that can be real bad, right? We're, we're, we're sitting there thinking like, oh, the poor priest, instead of, oh, I, I resonate with that wound. You know, I have a similar wound, right? I mean, the sort of the criterion that, that we heard in, in, in preaching, right, was make sure you've got a scab on your wounds before you talk about them, <laughs> All this stuff's fluid, right? But, but, and it has, to be, it has to be sort of figured out a little bit, right? Because, again, it's the hard bit, right? Is that in the orders of ministry, there's also the, the, you know, the hierarchy, right? So in some ways, sure, the rector is just another girl or just another guy in the kingdom of God, but they have more authority in, in the physical plant and operations of the church. And how we operate, that's it's tough stuff. Well, it also needs to be clear as a two-way street. Yeah. I, mean, I consider you a friend, but clearly there's some different boundaries there. And it's not one that's been discussed too openly in the church. Yeah, that's an some of this is new to me. Some of this is new. So that's a good question, right? How many of you have taken Safeguarding God's children training? You probably did not talk about boundaries about what you share and what you don't share. I'm just guessing, right? Because we know you don't talk about inappropriate things with children. Those inappropriate things are profanity, sexuality, right? Drugs and alcohol, even if you can use those in moderation. We're going to talk about that with kids, right? That's pretty fair. How many of you have taken guards God's people? Yeah, and um, did you talk about at all the kinds of boundaries you're supposed to have in relationships in the church? So part of the problem, right, is that when we overinvest in people getting care, when we, when we sort of violate the caregiver, care-receiver, family relationship, I think, and, and again, this is sort of the, the tough part about the hierarchy in some ways, right, is that we put ourselves in this nebulous relationship that's open for all other kinds of abuse, right? I mean, no priest who's had, you know, affairs with people in the congregation started out having affairs with them. You know, it started with some other boundary violation, and it grew, and they both felt needy, or they felt, you know, this, this presence together. I mean, that's 95% of the bit, right? And, and again, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is not follow this one tangent, but to say this is one of the hard things about reconciling that the priest is a person just like you with the hierarchy also built into the organization, right? And, of course, it doesn't mean that a priest doesn't share their personal life with you. I think it just depends how far they go and in what manner. Again, there's a difference between sharing your details and a difference between hemorrhaging with somebody, you know, repeatedly. But I don't have the clear answer on it either. Yeah, we also get um, continuing education credit for seeing our therapists. Um, and, and, that, and that's helpful, right? There's an incentive to do that. We also have insurance that if we choose to allot our health savings account, right, is really good about 
seeing therapists or LCSWs, etc. right? It seems like being a rector at a church for a number of years, that would, how, how does that work? Uh, being able to keep so much separation and yet being in a congregation for 20, 30 years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing. And, and honestly, the rector that mentored me said he, if he stayed more than seven years in a place, he knew he was staying too long. Because his understanding was he had seven years, maybe, maybe nine, that's the longest he ever stayed somewhere, to sort of do what he did, and then he was ready to take another church through that process of, of, of growth, etc. you know. And not everybody does that. I know priests that have been somewhere for 30 years, right? And I, and I think where it gets really tangled, right, is is in relationships, the question is, um, do, do we lose, do we get so entwined with people's reaction to what we preach that we cease to preach where we hear God asking us? You know, that's another bit, right? You can say, God, I'm just so worried I'm going to disappoint or make so-and-so mad because I know that they're, I know that they're a liberal Democrat and here I am getting ready to support something you know, from the White House, and I'm afraid our friendship's going to be hurt. And that's not a, fr- that's not a place you want to be, right? You, I mean, part of the goal is that we're, we're called upon to preach our conscience. This spills over into your family life, too, your wife and your kids, how close they can be to other people. Yeah, you know, and everybody makes different decisions, right? And, and the way we grew up is, and so we grew up evangelical, right? It's important to know. And it's got a yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. So, so, and that's part, of, that's part of the rub for her, you know, is that um, in the evangelical world, there's, the, there's the, the, the preacher, and then there's the preacher's wife who works full-time without pay, <laughs> right? And, and it's hard to say, actually, which one of the two has more control over the congregation. I mean that. You've grown up in those places? And now here's this new thing happening in the Episcopal Church. And I, I don't know, this wouldn't work in the Baptist Church unless the congregation were really special. Because in the Baptist Church, right, each place calls their own person. That's what they do, right? Don't need any permission to do it. Um, Methodist Church, maybe, is, you know, there are a number of clerics in the Diocese of Texas who are married to people who don't attend any church at all. I'm one of those people. And it's not right or wrong, you know. Honestly, a lot of it has to do with um, the, the spouse's relationship with God, right? And in some ways, their concern about how they'll be treated at church. Because, you know, it's, 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 it's one thing to come on Sunday electively, and it's another to be the rector's wife. And we all know that you, you, you want to be good to the rector's family. We all know that, but it, and it creates some tension, you know. Um, and I'm not going to speak for why my wife does and doesn't do what she wants to do. The truth is she does what she wants to do. And we knew that from the beginning, and we've been okay with that, you know. And um, she's going to continue to do what she wants to do. And under any uh, stress from me, believe me, she's still going to do what she wants to do. <laughs> and so I can make that increasingly uncomfortable for myself or not, you know. But... Um, <laughs> I, I, but I think in some ways that's, that's part of the tension that we're going through is that really we have a crop of priests who are married to spouses that don't go places and we still have spouses who love the church and they invest in it and they're both fine. And neither one is better than the other. But you know, you always have this fear organizationally. Not, I, I don't know, 
Again, this is part of the fear, like being in the rector's family, right? Is that you're going to be treated in relationship to the rector instead of who you are. It was the same having my mom teach high school math at the high school I went to. I got some preferential treatment. I got some negative treatment because I was held to a higher standard. And some because, you know, it was like your mom is... I was fortunate that my mom is really a great person. You know, if she'd been mean, I guess it would have been really bad. But you know, my mom was like the most one of the most beloved people there to work with and to study under. Um, so that helped. But you know, that held me to higher scrutiny too because I was not one of those people. <laughs> yeah. So, so again, that can be, and again, that's really tough. Now, any job has some of that. Like right? you try being a Navy wife, right? And and being in Coronado, that was my last place. I was the associate. We had seven admirals at a time worshiping there, and, and we had probably 35 captains. And for some of those captains, the reason they didn't make admiral was their wife. Welcome to the Navy. Because being the admiral's wife requires you to have a certain way of political styling and handling affairs. Um, and some of the women just sort of said, I'm not doing that. And it cost their husband the admiralty. Good for them, I'd say, and, and hard, right? I mean, this is, this is, that's what I mean about us being regular people and there's the hierarchy, right? And it's, it, can, it can be really tough. I don't know what it's like for my daughter. You know, I, my daughter loves being here. <laughs> I'm glad she does. He's still for the CEO of any company, his wife. Well, I think that's right. I think that's right. Whether they want to, I mean, it's like being the first lady or the first spouse. Yeah, and I've noticed, I've noticed part of why it goes away, um, cause, because my last, so the mentoring rector I'm referring to is a man, and his wife loved the church and was really invested in it. She was. And then the new, the new rector that was there for a year before I came here was a lady, and her husband came, and he loved the church and was involved. But I can tell you it was different. It was different being the rector's husband than being the rector's wife. It was different. Not because they made it so, because we all made it so. Do you, do, you, do you know what I mean? Now, I do think that's going away in this generation, but let's not fool ourselves. That's not gone. It's not gone. I attended a church in the 80s that had a husband and wife record. Mm -hmm. That was cool. And, and one of my best friends is doing that in San Diego, yeah? That's so cool. And they, were, and they have to work really hard to work it out, and when they do, it works great. You know, that's it. When they share it well, it goes well. Now, see, my last, my last church did this, and it was, a, it was a disaster. They had a priest who was great, and then his wife became a priest and increasingly got hired into various capacities because you may not know this, but the, the rector is really the only employee of the vestry. Well, the vestry doesn't really employ the rector, but you know that's sort of how it goes. The church staff, including the associate, is not hired by the vestry. That's, they work for the, the report only to the rector. This is sort of how it goes. Now, they can bring concerns, and salary has to be worked down if we're good about all this stuff, right? But, but um, the, the priest was okay. People didn't necessarily like his wife, who kept getting more and more, and all of a sudden was going to be the head of school. 
at the rector's suggestion and the school board, that was the end of them. I mean, the, the school board sort of said, no, you're not doing that to us. Um, so that would be an example of the dysfunctional pairing, right? But, but a lot of it had to do, right, with the boundaries they held for each other, right, and the way that they didn't, they didn't share with their congregation those decisions. They don't have to, but there's consequences when you don't. I'm afraid of this is a big fat waste of your time. You know, I'm not even sure I'm saying anything of any merit here. Yes, sir. And then you've got to think about that. That doesn't just apply to your staff whom you're paying. That applies to all your people in this case, right? Uh, because, and you, you know, the dangers of being, a, of being a manager, right? You have somebody working underneath, you have a great friendship, and then it becomes really difficult to have the professional relationship, right? Because, wait a minute, why, we're friends. Why are you saying this? Right? This is really difficult. Some people toe that line well. Of course, it's always uncomfortable to be called out for something. There's no, there's no way to make that less uncomfortable, really. Um, yeah. Yeah. And limits of tolerance and you know, respect for others, you know, things that you show by being. And that's, and hopefully that's what we do when we do it well, you know, and I, and I will tell you, I was, again, formed by somebody. This, this was interesting. You've heard me say this before, maybe. The, the, the church in Coronado is just absolutely gorgeous. Tiffany windows that came around the Horn of South America, you know, they're built in New York City. And, and it's tremendous. The church was built in memoriam of a, a riverboat captain's daughter and it was gifted in her name with provisions. The provisions were there was only one other church in Coronado on the island at that time and it was a Roman Catholic church and the provisions were it was going to be Christ Protestant Episcopal Church. And so the provisions of the gift were that the church could enjoy the building if they did the following. <laughs> no candles on the Lord's table. The altar was not a word used. Lord's table. The minister could never pick up the plates after collected. Could not do that. The minister would be referred to as Mr. As Mr. Not as Father. <laughs> um, there would be no cross in front of the Good Shepherd window. Which is a Tiffany huge thing. I mean, it's like 15 feet tall, right? Those were the provisions for the church having the building, which meant if the church violated them, the family could have it back. And it's interesting to think about this, right? Um, because the merit, there's some merit to some of those things, right? 
some merit to some of those things. Again, it was really interesting to thinking about that the minister was, was Mr. And not, and not father, because, you know, of course, there is that divine injunction by Jesus that you call no man father, for we all have one father in heaven, right? Um, I think we use the title as, as a way of positional authority, right? But, I, but I, I, coming back full circle, right, the, the, the church is a ministry of the laity, and, 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 and I'm a lay person too, even though I'm wearing a collar, hopefully, on your behalf. And, and again, that just makes it, this makes it difficult. But good. You know, Mike, you drew those boxes as concentric boxes, but there are exceptions that make them not concentric boxes. Say, exceptions to not being concentric yeah, boxes, you yeah. You mentioned you being a laity, but if you leave this church, you can't come be a member of this church. Uh, great, great, great thing. Um, I can leave the church and come back and be a member if I wait a year. That's the policy in the Diocese of Texas. And that's to enable pastoral relationships to kind of do their thing and for the new rector who will be your care provider to make new ones with you. Now, that's up to every bishop. Some bishop could say, you never go into that church again. I don't know what would happen if I did. I mean, I'd get inhibited, but if I weren't a priest anymore, I don't guess it would matter. But out of respect for the new person, I sure wouldn't want to do it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Lillian told me one, at one point that as a retired priest, she could not be a member of this church. Oh, you know, because as, because as clergy, we can't be members of any church. Okay. Yeah, that's right. We're members of, yeah, that's right. Sorry, that's, that's a good point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, we can make pledges, which in my head is what makes you a member, but in the letter-moving member, my letter exists with the diocese, the bishop holds my letter, not any parish. Yeah, that's a good point. These are the idiosyncrasies of the polity, right? I mean, they're kind of weird. Lynn Could you define laity as those who are not ordained? Well, you could, but the problem is you're ordained for ministry at the baptismal covenant. I just, I just think it's, when we talk about ordination, we're talking about holy orders, that is, people with a specific call role and function in the church right. that has to do with government. I understand all that. Yeah. I'm talking about laity. Yeah, well, I think you've got a specific call. I just think you don't have it pertaining to government, per se. Okay. Right? I mean, love your neighbor is... I'm not nitpicking. Oh, no, no. All of this is tough to say, right? I mean, you're, I think your commission as a layperson is love your neighbor as yourself. And the love of your Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and everything left over after that. Those are the commissions of every person in the church. Even if you're an atheist, I'm pretty sure those are your commissions. Right? Okay, hey, thanks for your attention. And Sorry, that was really strange. <laughs> okay. Um, next week, we're taking off. Next week, no adult forum. <laughs>